play a good game, boy. But the game is finished. Now you die. A video nasty, 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 a video Welcome to It's a Nasty World, the podcast all about the video nasties in censored cinema. My name is Ashley McNasty, joined here by my lovely co-host, Elmo4and5. Hello, we've got a really good one for you today. And the movie we're checking out is Phantasm from 1979, which is a section three of the video nasties. This was a good one. I had a fun time watching this. And it's, it's weird because this is a movie I've always heard about. Um, I'd never actually checked out and seen it before. And I, I kind of was aware that there was definitely a following to this film. That, like there, This is actually kind of a, like a small film series. There's a few. There's actually a few of these. But at the same time, this one doesn't really get talked about in the way that uh, other films kind of like they're similar to it would. It's, it, it doesn't really ever get included with the other big uh like late 70s and 80s uh slasher films partially because this isn't really a slasher but it's like well neither is hellraiser but pinhead gets thrown in with freddie jason and michael myers all the time so why isn't the tall man involved yeah the tall man is great and i think it's it lies in some of the origins of this film because this was a 100 percent uh independently financed uh like labor of love uh you know, it's and it's not like a backyard movie by any means. It's a very, it looks very good, but it was it had no studio financing whatsoever. It was all just like locally sourced from the director's uh, parents and uh, kind of they said like local uh, doctors and lawyers from around the community that he knew. Yeah, and the movie was definitely a box office box office success. I mean, they spent 300k to make the movie, and they came back with 22 million. And there's actually five Phantasm movies, and I'm a huge fan of these movies, so I've actually seen all five. Which there's people who are fans of the movie Phantasm who haven't even seen two, three, four, or five. So you know, I'm a little bit of a Phantasm fangirl per se. <laughs> And it's, I think it's also a little unfortunate about the series as a whole is that uh, I think one of the reasons it didn't catch on quite as hard as, you know, some of the other uh, films we mentioned was that there is a noticeably long period between most of the sequels. And part of this was the director just straight up couldn't think of a way to uh, actually write a sequel. Uh Uh, He considered the film to be the first film to be kind of completed and done. And so just kind of really didn't know where to take it from there, even though it was a uh, box office success. Uh, And so I guess in the meantime, he had directed the uh, Sword and Sandal uh, kind of sword or Sword and Sorcery uh, fantasy film, The Beastmaster, which is a like I'm aware of it just kind of as being a uh, bad Conan the Barbarian ripoff. (laughs) Yeah, it. I remember that movie from being in video stores, but seeing it on the shelves, but never having any inclination to rent it just because, I mean, honestly, I don't know much about that movie, but it just kind of looked corny from the cover. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, that could be a fun little side series. Do something like, 
yeah, let's watch all of like the weird 80s sword and sorcery films. They're all just like <laughs> ripoffs of like, uh, it's like we get some of like the good ones where they get like, you know, Willow and like, you know, <laughs> and Conan, but then you have like the real fucking trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie, um, this movie is definitely not trash though. Phantasm is. This is probably up there with some of the, I think, one of the best movies we've covered in this series so yeah. far. It's up there. Because even though it was, like, I mean, and through everything that all the cast members and crew members have said about the film, that the entire time they were working on it, they were really were just flying by the seat of their pants. They never had a full working script uh, the entire time they were there. It was always, like, it was, they were constantly doing rewrites throughout it, and uh, they improvised quite a bit during the uh filming of it and to the point where you know it's like some people say yeah like if you just kind of look at this like the actual working script that they had at least for what they had and what pages they had it they none of it really made any coherent sense or cut together in a way that that like you could make sense by just reading it and so this film was definitely saved in the editing bay (laughs) And, and 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 speaking of the editing too uh shout out to the director don coscarelli because this guy he if there is one person who can be said to be responsible for phantasm it is him he directed wrote it produced it he was the cinematographer cameraman and editor on the film partially because of the cost measures but at the same time it's like if this is a real example of auteur theory in work and it's like nope because you could say, yeah, film is a you know, film is a collaborative uh, medium. There, you know, you, there, it takes a multitude of people to make a film happen, and you know, a lot of times, usually, someone like the editor, do, you know, doesn't get their fair shrift. And you know, even though they may have been the one who actually like really saved the movie, made it what it was. In this case, no, Don Coscarelli did all of it. This is his baby. <laughs> yeah, and one thing I want to say about this movie is I remember really enjoying this movie when I rented it from my local video store and watching it on VHS, but now rewatching the movie and with the high definition, it actually it made the movie just such an even more enjoyable experience with the full restoration of this movie. The full restoration, I would say really gave this movie the justice that the VHS copy did not give this movie when I first saw it. Because it looks fantastic. It's like, in terms of like, uh, yeah, Coscarelli as a visual stylist, he, he's quite good at what he does. And this, and I think there's an interesting element to what this film d- uh, does and how it uses interior spaces. Because um, it's not all, not all the film is interior, but like, and it's unique usage of a, a mortuary or a funeral home as its main, as kind of like one of the main set pieces of the film, which is, I find, a strangely underused setting for uh, horror films. I, I don't recall really seeing a whole lot that are, have their set there uh, very often. Yeah, I this was this was one of the first few movies that for, one of the few movies I ever saw that it kind of and I I believe I personally have a theory that this movie actually heavily influenced movies like Babadook and Hereditary cuz it kind of the way Phantasm actually starts, it literally starts at a funeral. A loved one's died, everyone's grieving and no one's okay, which the typical trope of many horror movies is that 
everybody's having a good time. They're usually going to a summer house. They're going to party. They're going to have sex. No, this movie starts out with a grieving family, which was very much not done at that time. So there was definitely a lot of things about this movie that were very visionary. And it actually, this movie has a lot more pop culture influence than it's credited for. Like anyone see, read the uh, uh, creepypastas about the Slender Man? Yes, the Slender Man, based on the tall man from the movie Phantasm. And uh, you also have any uh, gamers out there familiar with the Half-Life series. The character of the G-Man from Half-Life is... Uh... You know, very clearly based upon the tall man. Uh, it's, you know, go back and watch it. It's kind of unmistakable. A strange, tall, lanky, otherworldly figure. Although he isn't you know, quite so outwardly villainous towards the protagonist as he is in these films. I liked how you were talking about how this film starts in, as opposed to uh, maybe some other horror films. Like Typically, like, you know, your typical slasher. Sometimes it can come in the form of... You know, there is an outside invader coming into the idyllic, pristine place and disrupting the order of things, kind of like in Halloween. Or it can be more of like a Friday the 13th thing where the group of care or like an evil dead thing where your group of characters has gone to, you know, has already crossed the threshold from normal world into a, a different world that is outside their ordinary lives. And then that is uh, where the conflict and change begins to happen there they are in a place they don't belong they're in a place but this one more described it's it starts with a a regular occurrence from outside you know for that's an everyday well not every day but it is a a normal part of life a death occurs from the outside and affects the family without them ever really going or doing anything and it's only from there that this strange mystery begins to occur and yeah kind of unfold and one thing i I realized that I, I saw rewatching it was really clever how they set up the perfect scenario for a dreamlike villain, you know, kind of a reality bending villain, the tall man played by the late Angus Scrim. And um, yeah, so they, they, so we, we have people that are already confused, scared and disoriented. So it really is a great setup for a villain like the tall man. And Rewatching it, I thought that was a really uh, brilliant, brilliant way to set up for the tall man to do what he does. <laughs> and it's because, and this film definitely, I mean, we've mentioned this quite a bit on uh, our previous episode about Giallo films, but this one also, and in this, in this, uh, I think uh, the director has uh, stated that this film is uh, heavily influenced by Suspiria. In that it definitely has this very intentional dreamlike quality to things. Oh, definitely. And he said specifically also the the, the floating metal spears um, were directly inspired by a dream he had. Yeah. Uh, so it's like so they literally were taking elements from dreams and the idea of like these strange liminal and uncanny places and just like these uncanny occurrences happening and kind of being able to vaguely string them together. But I find that this film tends to be a bit more, a little bit more grounded than uh, at least either of the Jalos we watched uh, previously. And partially because there's actually a bit of character building that happens in this. And I think, you know, the bond between these two brothers and their friend 
kind of actually kind of bring the movie back down into a way that even if you don't really know exactly what's happening, you can still care about these people as people in a way that continues to keep you engaged in the film. Yes, and I do want to talk about what happens in this movie. And for people who um, who've been you know who've been uh, listening to this podcast regularly, some of these like some of the movies we've reviewed are so terrible that. It's good to get the spoilers, but honestly, if you haven't seen Phantasm and, you know, you you think it looks interesting to watch, I mean, before we get into all the spoilers, this is, this is one personally I highly recommend. Like, this is, it's such a good movie. I have, like, I, this is probably the most notes I've taken on any movie we've reviewed because some of these movies we've reviewed were so lame that there was, like, like two pages of notes to take on the whole movie. This, I have a giant stack of notes about this movie. So, you know, before we get into, you know, what happens in this movie, if you're interested in this movie, turn this off, go watch the movie, then come back. <laughs> no, for real. And honestly, this is very available to watch. It's, um, at least as of right now, we're uh, recording this in late May of 2022. Uh, it, it's incredibly available on a number of free streaming services. Yeah, you're going to have to sit through a few ads, but for an hour and a half film, hey, it's not too bad of an experience. Uh, it's, yeah, I think I just watched it on Plex. Uh, I think, was it you watched it on YouTube? Yeah, I watched it on YouTube. I actually um, purchased it on YouTube, and then I got a text from Ashley McNasty saying that there are plenty of free places to watch it. Yeah, but it's but on, on Tubi and Crackle and Plex and all yeah. the other things for free. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I'm... I'm proud to support this movie. Like, I think the people involved in this movie should still be getting paid for this movie because I love it so much. It's it, it's not like the time I, I actually purchased snuff to review it. Ugh, I can't believe I own that movie. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so... As we so we start off with uh, I think is we learn that our two main our two main characters these brothers uh, was it? it's Mike and Jody uh, they their parents have died somewhat recently and then a close friend of theirs has also just died yeah and we are witnessing his funeral um, and it just uh, the younger brother Mike just kind of notices the Undertaker the tall man uh was is able to you know at the end of the service single-handedly lift the casket up into uh the back of a hearse um as if it weighs absolutely nothing and then drives off and it deeply disturbs him and eventually and it's great how they introduce the tall man because they they make him seem kind of a a uncanny and strange and maybe potentially villainous character but they don't portray him immediately as being this character who's out to menace and murder our characters like right from the get-go you actually see him walking around town in some scenes but just his presence is incredibly unnerving yeah one thing about the tall man's character that i think the my, my favorite are the first two phantasms because honestly there is something creepier before you actually really know anything about the origin story of the tall man because they don't from what i remember the the, this one and the second one you know there was still a lot of mystery and i think the mystery of the tall man does make him scarier and he's just he's tall he lurks he has this really creepy raspy voice like he's intimidating even the way he talks he moves he has this creepy snarl when he looks at people he's just 
just a character that gives you the shivers and there is something about the mystery to him which makes him scarier which i think actually makes this movie a very effective movie and that, uh, it, it goes into part of like the one of the better rules of horror you know uh like lovecraft said it best i'm gonna paraphrase but it's something like you know mankind's deepest horror is that of the unknown you know and you know you're more scared of the of of what's in the shadow than the shadow itself you know it's like when you turn on the lights well whatever it's not scary anymore but the fact that anything could be lurking in that shadow is the more scary thing and uh, this movie kind of intentionally like this is where like the giallo uh kind of uh this is where the giallo influence is really seen in that they don't explain that much to you they have there's a series of events happening i mean and we know why our characters are kind of initially investigating this strange uh funeral home and with all these like really weird occurrences going on around them but it's they don't provide us with any real concrete answers to as to why any of this is happening and that creates like the rather eerie effect and just kind of strange vibe this whole film has yeah, and I would say what reminds me of Giallo films and generally that era of like late 70s grindhouse or Giallo horror was that that era it really captures with the music in it because it doesn't always play spooky music when stuff's going down like it has like it sometimes has like not scary but grim but kind of like Kind of like you could almost dance to it if it wasn't so spooky, if well, that makes sense. I do know, but the uh, the soundtrack of this film, they said, uh, was directly inspired um, by Gob- uh, Goblin, you know, the Italian uh, electronic band who did um, just a shit ton, of, who is the sound of Giallo films, mm-hmm. and uh, was also influenced by uh, John Carpenter's music, even though I think at that point Halloween was the only uh big film he had done at that point that people would be familiar with but even so his you know he had such an iconic score in that film that it was definitely an influence and that's and halloween is also one of the reasons this film got picked up in the first place because all of a sudden these you know kind of lower budget horror movies had come into vogue and uh also uh the uh mike olenfield's music um Mm. who he did the well he actually didn't do it he didn't do the song tubular bells he didn't actually do it for The Exorcist, but it ended up being used in The Exorcist, and it works so well that if you didn't know any better, you'd just say this was written for The Exorcist. And yeah. so kind of like the soundtrack is kind of a, a influence of those three, and it, it's – honestly, I love the soundtrack. It's it's It slaps so hard. Yeah, and um, yeah, you know, and all the characters are great, and one, one character that I think doesn't get – um, get much attention from Phantasm fans because it, it usually people always talk about the tall man and Reggie. Those those are beautiful characters, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. But you know the uh, spooky psychic grandma lady. Oh I I she she is just she's got some vibes. I just I love that character, even though she I don't think she even says a word, but she's amazing. Now I want to talk about this scene. So early in the film. Uh, the younger brother, Mike, who has kind of witnessed this unnerving effect, goes to a friend's house uh, who and visits with her grandmother, who is apparently a psychic. And she has like kind of like it's you couldn't look more witchy. It's like this older woman with these, you know, dark round sunglasses wearing them indoors. Yeah, I don't think she speaks at all in the film yeah. and just kind of sits there with this presence. And this film in particular 
is directly ripped from uh, Dune, the sci-fi novel, now uh, movie. And you know, had this, had David Lynch's 1984 version of Dune come out uh, kind of before this movie, they definitely wouldn't have done this because this is like, this is like a scene for scene ripoff of this scene in Dune where, you know, the main character, Paul, has to stick his hand inside of a black box. And what is in the black box? Pain. Pain is in the box. And, and but then, of course, he has kind of talked through this whole thing, saying, like, no, fear is the mind killer. You know, there's only fear. Fear is the mind killer. You know, you shall not fear. And without directly ripping off any lines from the book, uh, they basically just paraphrase the lines from it. And it's it's... I'm like, oh, huh. it was uh, the it's quote. Very... It said, "Fear is the killer." Yeah, all in your mind or something like yeah, that. Fear, in the yeah, movie. don't fear. Fear is the killer. Yeah, it's only in your mind. So they they basically just say, "Fear is the mind killer," without saying, "Fear is the mind killer." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's like it's, and even then, it's like okay, if you were a super nerd back then in the late seventies who had actually like read Dune, um, you know, you you get that like, oh, oh, it's the thing from the thing. Oh my god! And yeah. you know, now of course, you know that we've had the you know a big budget version of Dune that's come out recently. You know, everyone's gonna be very familiar with the scene now <laughs> yeah and um i gotta say even that doesn't take away from the movie because there is so much there are so many original things that happen in this movie yeah that looks i mean like... there are no sandworms and there is no uh kind of galactic battle between two noble houses for the control of a desert planet yeah that's <laughs> that's not really what's going on here <laughs> yeah so and um yeah and then after that we get um my notes, we got the, uh, we got the brother and Reggie uh, jamming out on the guitar. And I want to talk about the character Reggie. The guy who plays Reggie in the film, he was actually in the Vietnam War. And he, when he got out of the army, he actually became a musician and an anti-war activist, which I find really fascinating. And as I was researching that, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, they always kind of have him like throughout the film series because he's a reoccurring reoccurring actor and character throughout these movies. You know, he's always like playing guitar, and it's always like that's like a big stream with him. But the reason they have that is he was an actual musician, so I think they just kind of were like, yeah, yeah, do I mean, your it, music. It was, it's funny because when you first get the the guitar scene in, you have like the Jody, the older brother, is just kind of like jamming on his guitar and then all of a sudden this i think that's actually where reggie gets introduced is that all of a sudden and he is an ice cream truck driver in the film but all of a sudden this guy this ice cream truck driver just like sits down next to him picks up an acoustic guitar and just starts jamming with him and at first i seem like oh, okay they're just gonna do some lame fucking thing to eat up a little bit of time in this movie because it's like yeah they didn't have that much to work with so hey let's just film a little jam session but then it's like they get going. I'm like, oh my god, this guy's fucking slap. Like, this is good. Yeah, <laughs> it's and, really good. And they had him do it because he was actually a talented musician. But yeah, in a lot of these movies, when when you see a random white guy picking up an acoustic guitar, you're like, oh, cringy song to kill time. But it was like, yeah, no, right. th no, there's like the there, best... there's some heart in the music they're yeah. playing. Like honestly, like the best you can normally hope for is like, oh, this is gonna be some weird avant-garde guitar mime shit here. But it's like, no, no, this is like, yeah, it's legit. Yeah. R.I.P. Guitar Mime. No, seriously. <laughs> I wanted to talk about a particular scene that's a super what-the-fuck moment. And this whole movie is a series of what-the-fuck moments, but this is less in the surreal what-the-fuck moments. This is more of the WTF, like, this was weird writing. So we have the... So 
we we have the uh, the older brother taking this woman from a bar to go bang her in a cemetery where their brother was just buried, which is kind of weird. They had just gone from the funeral, and yes, I I want to go fuck some hottie in the graveyard my brother's buried in, and then his little brother sneaks into the cemetery. He follows them and goes to watch them have sex. Now, this part to me, I find very, very bizarre. Like, yeah. I don't know. There's so much level of what the fuck going the on here. little a fucking perv. But you will notice, though, uh, the woman he picks up, uh, she is credited as the Lady in Lavender. And she apparently is the same person that their friend whose funeral they are attending at the very beginning of the film slept with and subsequently was murdered by and in actuality is the tall man yeah and it's like and that's really where you get this like and this is kind of where the editing of the film uh really kind of comes in and they use these interesting jump cuts where it's kind of cutting back and forth between you know the lady in lavender and the and then occasionally will flash in the tall man kind of in the same position but it's always these kind of tight close-ups, so it just kind of leaves it to your imagination where it's like, is she being controlled by the tall man? Is she the tall man? Like, is the tall man watching them? Like, what exactly is happening here? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, and we're just kind of providing our interpretation of the film. Uh, it's, you know, I think, you know, it is in actuality the tall man, you know, in, you know, kind of in some sort of disguise of some sort. Uh, but... You know, hey, watch the movie and make your own decisions. Yeah, he likes to uh, dress up in drag and have sex with uh, men in their early twenties. And seduce men in their early twenties. Unlike, uh, it's like not unlike Bugs Bunny and myself. Yeah, <laughs> tall. The tall man was Bugs Bunny the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, and. Yeah, this this movie is so visually cool. Like I was looking at my notes of just really cool shots. Like when um the uh, the kid has a the the kid has this nightmare where his bed is in the cemetery, but his bed is like in like a burial bed in the cemetery, and you you see you see him wake up, and the tall man is just hovering over him and then then these like zombies come up and just pull him into the ground and he wakes up you know just yeah this this movie is just really cinematically cool looking and uh one more little dune reference then uh the brother uh after this scene uh you have the brother he enters into a bar what is that bar called it's called dune's cantina (laughs) whoa I, I don't think I noticed that until now because I didn't find out about the uh, the Dune references until just today. For me, I have not seen Dune, and I now plan to change that really soon. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then this is where we get some really good scenes of the inside of the mortuary. Mm-hmm. And th- like this is where the film like goes from being, oh, like a good, interesting uh, horror film to fucking iconic. Because these, like, it's this amazing space inside where you have these long hallways where the floor and walls are all marble lined. It's just an incredibly austere place. Uh, there, uh, other than the, you know, you, you, there's almost, like, there's no sign of life throughout the entire place. Almost like, does anyone even work here? And you have these strange, like, kind of marble busts of, like, you know, Roman or Greek heads uh, kind of lining the, you know, lining the walls. 
and it, it creates this uh if you're familiar with the uh, concept of like liminal spaces kind of like these strange empty interior usually interior spaces that are usually kind of like a transitory place like i've seen like pictures of an empty mall or an empty airport or something like that this very much has that similar kind of unnerving feeling yeah and um one thing we cannot forget to talk about the iconic ball in fact I the orbs! The orbs, yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure one of the... I don't remember which Phantasm sequel has that, but one of the sequels' taglines actually says said on the VHS box, the ball is back. Because this <laughs> orb is so such an iconic uh, moment in cinema history. Like, this... So... So one of the tall man's many uh, weapons and spooky things at his disposal is this big ball orb thing that comes around that flies around with like two it has like two spears on the side and then it then it lands on your head sticks itself to your head and then a drill uh, drills into the center of your forehead until you're dead and it's it's very iconic and they keep it a reoccurring theme throughout the entire series because the, uh, the ball is so iconic in this movie. And no, uh, it's like there. Yeah. It's like, and that, yeah, I think that, and that's also partially what launches this into. And so you have these strange Chrome spheres, like floating at high speeds, you know, just zooming down these like crazy unnerving mortuary hallways, just like, yeah, I see like that, like this chrome orb going against these like marbled walls. Like it really creates for this really cool visual effect, and and then I think also we have neglected to talk about the dwarves. Uh, yeah, the dwarves. As <laughs> yeah, we like the the tall man's main minions, and yeah. kind of what it ends up turning out to be, it's kind of sort of the the reason that any of this is even happening. Yeah, so what happens, what what ends up, they end up finding out as later in the movie, we're not going to go into the entire movie, but we'll go into tidbits, but he, they um, the dwarves are actually the souls of people that the tall man has either killed or taken from the cemetery. He takes the souls, he turns them into these little dwarves well, the and souls? enslaves them. Is it the, okay, so, well, that's the thing that's unclear is if it's even it's the souls or the bot or merely just the bodies of people, and it's like through some sort of strange process, kind of like because they never show it; it's only alluded to or implied. But like they're kind of shrunk down to about a, a quarter of their size somehow, and kind of like are strange robed creatures, kind of like the Jawas from Star Wars, and. And so, and, and you know, as we learn eventually by the end of the film, what it's like, oh. They're like whatever's happening. This strange entity that is the tall man has come from another world of some sort and is coming here. It seems like to rob our graves and create these like slave monsters out of you know out of our dead bodies and to have like them become dwarves, yeah. like these weird like robe dwarf monster creatures. And they, I think they. I think one of the characters theorizes that because they think this is like this otherworldly realm might be another planet and that because of the different gravitational force on the planet, they need to make them shorter and stockier so they can uh, withstand uh, the gravitational force. Yeah. And that's kind of, and that's kind of about all we really get as to why any of the events of the film are happening at all. 
Yeah, and they eventually find uh, uh, the portal to the other dimension where where uh, one of the, I forget which character briefly goes in and you actually yeah, see Mike, yeah yeah you see oh yeah it was Mike who who, go, who actually ends up uh, briefly in this portal and it's just this big red like kind of Mars looking like desert red tinted and you just see the dwarves in a line just carrying barrels looking like they're slaving away so they're basically they're basically slaves to the tall man or something. That's something. Like, we don't know. Maybe the tall man is merely working for something else. They don't provide concrete answers here. Yeah. And the moment when the characters actually go into the room with the portal is a special one also because it's all of a sudden you go from kind of this kind of grand, I, I don't know, it's like this somehow grand yet empty uh, mortuary with the, you know, the marble lined walls and everything. And they open a door with like this interesting relief of like a bunch of uh, kind of Greek looking heads up above almost like, are these like the guardians of the underworld or something? Or it's like, that's kind of like an implication that's going on here and enter a room that uh, the only things in it is a stark white room. It looks like it's straight out of uh, space odyssey, kind of the ending of space. Odyssey. just like, there's like, like, the only thing in it are stacks of these large plastic barrels, which have kind of like the dwarf bodies in them before they're fully resurrected. And the portal itself, which is just rendered as two like waist high chrome cylinders. And like there's no grand gateway. There's no electrical energy or mystical beams of light going through. It's just these two cylinders and they just, and there's something about that just set against this utterly white room and these two strange metal cylinders just standing there and they kind of have like a vibrating noise to them. I think it was uh, Reggie notes that he, he sees it and is reminded of his tuning fork that he was using to tune his guitar. And it's like almost like, oh, there's some sort of resonant frequency going here. And they use really good practical effects too when they show Mike sticking his hand into the portal, kind of like passing over the threshold of these two cylinders and how it's like his hand just disappears. It's like, yeah. he just goes in and like all of a sudden I can't see my hand anymore. And just kind of, it pulls it in, pulls it out. And it, it, there's something, it just, it's a really well done scene. Yeah. This is a really well-made movie. And um, I'm just going to briefly talk about, um, so, you know, the, I'm just going to, I'm not going to, let's not talk about everything that happens in this movie, but towards the end of the movie, there's kind of a fake out where you think the tall man is dead. And at the end, there's a very iconic scene that actually, that actually happens, which is also another reoccurring, uh, reoccurring, uh, theme throughout the, um, throughout the Phantasm movie. So the kid goes up to his room he closes the door, and the tall man is standing behind him and screams, "Boy!" And just I can't I can't do it justice the way Angus Scrim does it, but it is epic. And I remember I was quoting that for weeks. I just I just love that scene where he's like says "boy" and that just that <laughs> very like, and he just draws it out and he has that snarl and you know it's just. You know, R.A.P. Angus Scrim, he's an amazing actor. No, for real. The guy's got some serious stage presence. Yeah, Angus Scrim. I do, and so actually going back to the end of the movie, and I think we skipped over Franco, I think is one of the most important parts of the movie. Okay. Is that 
after all these trials and tribulations, they 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 managed to uh, they managed to do away with the tall man, although in a way that seems like you know maybe we did, maybe we didn't. Who knows? Uh, you know, Mike comes back, and all of a sudden, it's things just some. They're back in the house. You know, Mike and Jody, and because Mike and Jody are ultimately the ones who who save the day, and actually Reggie gets stabbed and killed, but then uh, earlier in the film, but then all of a sudden it's like the scene changes and it's Mike and Reggie sitting in front of the fireplace and Mike seems to be disoriented. He's not really sure what's going on. And Reggie explains to him that his brother died in a car accident mm, and yeah. it like, wait, and it's like, I know it's so soon just, you know, it's just, just like a week after your parents died, but you know, we'll, you know, we're going to get through this together, you know, and it's, it's this really touching emotional scene, but at the same time, you also are left questioning now, like, what just happened? Did any of this just happen? Like, what is and isn't a dream? It's like, there's so many implications throughout this. It's like, did, like, and then, of course, you know, he does go upstairs. He does encounter the tall man again. So, it's like, no, the tall man exists. This, like, some of this stuff exists, but... How much does it exist? Did it exist? Like, has my reality been altered? Uh, you know, is, you know, am I sane? There's so, like, it, and this, like, that scene just blows the entire movie apart and really delivers on the dreamlike quality of everything and makes you go back and question anything that has just happened in the film. Yeah, and that is also a reoccurring thing with all the uh, with the entire series is that it's supposed to be dreamlike. It's supposed to be disorienting and confusing. And I was actually looking. I always with these uh, video nasties always see what Siskel and Ebert had to say. And of course, oh, and of course, they hated this movie for being confusing. But I honestly, I think the confusingness of this movie is one of its qualities. And I felt like when I watched their review on it, I was like. You just don't get it, do you? You know? I th and in some cases, like, I don't think they did, but at least I know one thing that I know Ebert definitely conceded with the film is said, like, listen, this this film is clearly a labor of love. And, you know, even though felt like the story is a confusing story at the end of the day, it's like you can tell that they, they really put in a lot of work. And, you know, this isn't just like some amateur hour dog of the week film. It's like he did have to concede some artistry about the film, mm -hmm. even though clearly this was not their cup of tea. Oh yeah. And most horror movies weren't really their cup of tea, but yeah, I mean, they didn't rip into it like, like Friday the 13th or some of the other movies that they just went bad on. Like, you know, they did admit they did concede to that. But when I was listening to the review and I was like, the part of their criticism was the whole, it not making full sense. It's like the whole point is that it doesn't all make sense, you know? And frankly, I think this film doesn't make sense in a better way than at least uh, for, you know, what's worth in my opinion, that I think it does it in a much better way than uh, Inferno or The Beyond does. Yeah. And, and uh, so I think, uh, is that about all we have to cover here? Yeah. I mean, uh, R.A.P. Angus Scrim, great man. Absolute legend. And, oh, yeah, actually, well, since this is, I don't think any of the other Phantasm films made it onto the list here. I do want to shout out, uh, Don Cascarelli also has one other particularly notable film under his belt, Bubba Hotep. 
Oh, he made that movie. I like that fact, movie. Actually, he was trying to plan on doing uh, another, I think it was another Phantasm film with uh, Bruce Campbell in it, but that ended up falling through. Well, I know, um, I I was reading that there was plans on making a Phantasm 6, but Angus Scrim died and the movie is, the movies would not be, you can't replace the tall man. No. I don't, no one can do what Angus Scrim did with that part. I would be very surprised if somebody could pull it off. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and I, sorry, I do want to note this. It's any loyal listeners uh, may have noticed that our release schedule can get a bit sporadic at times. However, I will make this promise to you. Now, at our best, we try to get out an episode every other week. Now, at our worst, at our worst, we promise you at least two episodes a month. One may be on the first of the month, and the one other one may be at the very, very last day of the month, the very end of the month, but those two episodes will be out. And I wanted to make this announcement a little bit sooner, but we uh, tend to front load some of our episodes, so hopefully we don't have that much of a problem with this anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, we ha- we also have lives outside of this, which I, I apologize for. <laughs> Wait, why am I apologizing for that? That's a weird thing no, to apologize fuck for. fuck you. You should be thanking us for doing this. <laughs> <laughs> we have busy lives. We don't just do this all day. <laughs> no, this is a public fucking service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're helping so many people by talking about all, weird movies from the 80s. All 12 of you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well... That's all for us. Stay nasty. Stay nasty.